Amen. Take your Bibles as we continue our study through the book of Joshua and turn with me to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8. We'll be looking at that uh, chapter in its entirety this morning. If you'll turn there, I'll get there in just a few moments. I want to ask you a question, and uh, I don't think I'm alone in this feeling, but I'm going to ask just to make sure that you've experienced this as well. Have you ever gone to bed at night and laid your head on your pillow and just felt like a real loser? Anybody? Let's just, let's just show hands just so I know I'm not alone. That's most of you. That's most of you. That's good. I worry about the others of you. I don't know. You, maybe you started off great. You were optimistic about the day. You were encouraged. You were ready to face it. Maybe it took five minutes for that all to go away. Maybe you made it all the way until five o'clock in the evening. But at some point, you ended up just losing it, and you lay your head on the bed at pillow at night and think, I'm just a real idiot. Maybe the day started that way and stayed that way all day, and you knew you were a loser and an idiot when you woke up, and then you felt that exact way when you went to bed at night. I do have some good news for you in that. If you've ever felt that way, and one of the reasons I had you raise your hand is because I want to assure you, you're not alone. I have a lot of friends in Nashville, Tennessee. They go to a church uh, called Emmanuel. It's a great church, and they have what's called the Emmanuel Mantra. They say it together out loud every single Sunday. Here it is. Are you ready? Number one, I am a complete idiot. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. And number three, anyone can get in on this. That's a great mantra, isn't it? I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright and anyone can get in on this. I do have to tell you, though, the first time I heard that, I was a little offended. I thought, wait a minute, I don't really want to repeat over and over, I'm a complete idiot. But the more I begin to hear that, and particularly this year, as I've been reading through the Old Testament, I realized as I looked at all the heroes of the Bible, that mantra is actually pretty right on. I mean, I think about Noah as I read this year, and the one man who had faith, when no one else had faith, the one righteous man, and God chose him and saved he and his family because of their trust and faith in the Lord. And Noah spent 120 years building an ark when it had never rained before, preaching the whole time, it tells us, righteousness, that there is a day of judgment coming and you must be saved. For 120 years, no one listened to him, and he was faithful, built the ark, got on it, stayed on it, saw the waters come and the waters recede. And the next episode, Noah's drunk and naked and passed out. He had to have gone to bed that night feeling like a loser. I think about Abraham. He was given the promise of God of this new covenant. I'm going to make you a great nation, but you've got to leave, and I'm not going to tell you where you're going. The amount of faith this takes is incredible. So he steps out, has no idea where he's going, following the Lord moment by moment. The next episode, he throws his wife under the bus as he makes her say that she's his sister and not his wife to protect himself and put her in harm. You have to go to bed that night feeling like a loser. I think about... David, when 2 Samuel chapter 10 had this incredible victory over the Assyrians, 40,000 people who had opposed the work of God were killed. One of his greatest victories, the next 
chapter, he's standing on a balcony looking at something he shouldn't be looking at. He then pursues Bathsheba. He calls her to himself. He then lays with her. He then, in order to cover up his sin, has her husband killed. And I think about Peter, who at the Last Supper said, Listen, I know everyone else is going to deny you, but not me, Jesus. I will be the one who will never deny you. And three times that night... He denied the Lord Jesus Christ, the first one to a little girl who simply asked if he was a part of Jesus' group. I think the good news of all of that is that it appears that God builds his kingdom with people just like us. Those who often lay their head on their pillow at night and think, boy, I'm I'm just a real loser. What I love about Joshua 8 is Joshua 8's for us. It's for us. It's for those who can say the mantra, I am a complete idiot. It's for those who may have lost more battles than they've won. It's for those who failed yesterday and woke up today thinking that this is going to be a better day, but it hasn't been a better day, who are fighting and struggling and wanting so much to walk with the Lord, but are constantly overwhelmed with their own failures. Joshua 8 is for us. Because Joshua 8 is a reminder of what may be one of the most precious promises in all of Scripture found in the most unusual place in Lamentations 3 where it says this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, they never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Joshua 8 is about new mercies. And it's the only hope for those of us who desperately need them. Now, let me just remind you of a little background because it's important. So the entire book of Joshua is God's people on the move. They are going to go take a hold of the land, and the land is symbolic to life. Enjoying the presence of God, enjoying the peace of God, the promises of God. All of this emphasis on land is God leading his people to take hold of life as it was meant to be. It is the still promise for believers through Jesus Christ that those who trust Christ begin to take hold of life as God intended it for it to be. So they are on the move. And God has encouraged them in chapter 1 to be strong and have courage, be faithful. Why? Because he is going to give them the land. All they have to do is go take hold of it. And so the entire book is one of movement and one of victory. And so it is in chapter 3. They cross the Jordan supernaturally, following the presence of the Lord, seeing God do something miraculous in such a way that all the surrounding nations hear. Joshua chapter 6, it's time to take the first city, and that's Jericho. And God demonstrates his power and his strength because he's always the hero of every story in the Bible. They march around the city, they blow the trumpets, the walls come down, they take the city. An incredible victory that only God could accomplish. And you come to the end of chapter 6, and it seems as if the people of God are invincible. They are unstoppable because God is with them and they are on the move. And then you turn to chapter 7. And they're going to Ai, a very small little country that really only required a few soldiers. They sent a little group to spy it out. David, uh, Joshua said, listen, we don't need many. Let's just send 3,000. They send 3,000. Those soldiers are humiliated. 36 of them die. They run for their lives. The surrounding nations now have strength and have courage because they now see that it's possible to defeat the people of God. Joshua is devastated. The whole nation mourns. 
Joshua gets on his face and he accuses God. God, how could you do this to us? You promised us we would have victory. God tells Joshua to get up because the problem is not with the Lord. The problem is that there has been sin in the camp that Achan did the one thing they weren't supposed to do, which is take some of the spoils of Jericho. He hid it under his tent and they were beginning to see the rippling effects of sin. At the end of Joshua 7, the sin has been exposed. The sin has been dealt with. The chapter begins with the anger of the Lord on them. The chapter ends with the anger of the Lord being removed. Did they sin? Yes. Did they pay the consequences? Yes. Did God cover it? Absolutely. And then you come to chapter 8, the next moment after their greatest, most humiliating defeat. And look at what it says in verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Joshua, do not fear and, and, and do not be dismayed. Don't be scared. Don't be discouraged. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. That's the city that humiliated them in the previous chapter. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. What's amazing to me about Joshua chapter 8 is what's not said. There is no reminder of the failures of chapter 7. There is no moment in which the Lord says, now listen, I'm going to give you another shot here, but don't be an idiot like you were last time. This time, follow me and do what I say. There's never a mention of the failure of chapter 7. Was it a failure? Yes. Did they pay the consequences? Yes. But it was covered at the end of chapter 7. And chapter 8 is a new day filled with new mercies, with new promises and new commands. It's a new day. So he simply reminds them of the promises. Listen, don't be discouraged. And don't be afraid. I know what happened last time, but don't be afraid. Don't be courageous. Don't, don't, don't be dismayed. Don't be discouraged. There's fresh strength today. There's fresh courage today. And not only that, not only does he never mention the sin of the previous chapter, not only does he not just reassure him of his power and his presence and his love and his faithfulness and his kindness, he actually says, if you will obey me today, there are more blessings for you than there ever have been before. So he responds to their failure after they repent with a new day and new hope and new promises and new mercies and greater blessings than they've ever experienced before. Because in chapter 6 he says, go into Jericho, but there's one thing you can't do. Don't take the plunder. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the Lord. He comes to chapter 8 and he says, now listen, I want you to go to Ai again, but here's what I want you to do. Follow me and then take all of the plunder for yourself. It all belongs to you. He heaps on more blessings. Now, I mentioned to you this a couple of weeks ago, and I have to continue to mention it because it's significant in the book of Joshua. What you have here is the principle of first fruits. You see, it was an act of faith for them not to take any of the precious things from Jericho because they didn't have anything. They'd been living in tents for years. They had nothing. And they're gonna walk into Jericho and see all of this incredible stuff, and they're gonna think, wait, we're gonna need this stuff when we go into the land. But the Lord says, no, you don't worry about that stuff. Always give the first fruits to me. And if you will trust me enough to not take that, but to give that to me, then I will ensure that you will have every single thing that you need. It is always the principle of first things. This is why we give the Lord the first day of the week. This is why we should give the Lord the first moments of our day. This is why we give the Lord the first of our paycheck, not the leftovers, because every bit of that is an act of faith. 
It's saying, by faith, I'm going to give you this time in the morning believing that you're going to bless it by making sure I get everything else done the rest of the day. I'm going to give you this first of the check, believing there will be enough at the end. It is always a call to faith. But they failed to have faith and give the Lord the first things. And they failed. God gave them a completely new start in chapter 8. Now, the strategy is is clear. It's kind of an interesting story, starting in verse 3. Look at it with me. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. Last episode, they took 3,000 men with them. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it, and do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out against us, just as before, will flee before them. And they'll come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing from us just as before. It says, and as soon as you have taken this, then they shall rise uh, up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire, and you shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. Now you get the picture, because the last time they took 3,000 people, they went up, they got attacked by the people of Ai, they ran and were destroyed. What they end up doing is this. Joshua, in the next episode here, they give more details, takes 5,000 men with him. The 5,000 men approach Ai, and as soon as they see the people of Ai, who now have more courage because they won the last one, as soon as they see them come out, the people run just like they were scared as before. And it says that every single fighting man of Ai left the city to go pursue the 5,000. So as they leave to go pursue the 5,000, there's 25,000 other of the soldiers of the Lord that then come in behind the city and completely destroy the city while the men have been pursuing. Then the men of God turn and go the other direction so the people are caught between 5,000 of God's men and 25,000 men who have already destroyed the city and they take the city of Ai. The city that had defeated them now is defeated. And it says in verses 14 through 17, as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city hurried and went out early to the appointed place towards Arabah to meet Israel. He did not know there was an ambush against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. But look what it says starting in verse 18. Joshua, the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out the javelin that's in your hand towards Ai, for I'm going to give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. The men in the ambush rose out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. They hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, Behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, and the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some of them the side, and some on that side, and Israel struck them down, until there was left not one surviving or escaping. But the king of Ai, then they took alive and brought him near Joshua. Look at verse 24. When Israel had finished killing all of the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen to the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. Let me just stop right there. I've said this almost every week that we've talked about the book of Joshua. 
Because I can't tell you how many people have deep concerns over what they read in a passage like this. But let me remind you, this is a picture of the just wrath of God that God has given them. If you would have studied chapters 1 through 7 like many of you have with us, you will see time and time and time again, God has patiently given this nation an opportunity to come to him. He has offered them an opportunity to escape the wrath of God. He has allowed them to come and be a part of the people of God. And in chapter 2, Rahab, a prostitute from a pagan land, chooses to align herself with the people of God, and she is saved. These people had given opportunity and opportunity and opportunity to be saved. But because they continue to harden their heart against God, what happens to them is exactly what happens to everyone even today that continues to reject the offer of salvation. And that is they will ultimately receive the wrath of God. This is God pouring out his wrath while he has offered years of mercy and grace. But they always failed to receive it. But here the people of God did walk in new mercies. They did get the victory. And they received what God had promised them. But the story doesn't end there. Look at what happens in verse 30 at the end. This seems like an odd transition, but it goes from the battlefield to the altar. It says, now at that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, at Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no one has wielded an iron tool. They offered a burnt offering to the Lord, and they sacrificed a peace offering. There, in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourners as well as native-born, the sojourners are those who have chosen out of pagan nations to come and be a part of the people of God, who had chosen to be saved. With their elders and officers and judges stood on the opposite side of the ark before the Levitical priest, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law and the blessings and the curses according to all that was written in the book of law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel, the women, the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. So it seems odd that at the end of this big victory, they would stop and have a time of worship. But listen, it fits with everything that God is trying to teach us in chapter 8 because they come to the end of this battle and stopping there for a moment to worship the Lord is about renewal. It's about a renewal of the covenant. It's about stopping to remind themselves of who they are and who God is and what God has done for them. It's about stopping and reminding themselves they are the covenant people of God. And yes, if they follow the Lord, they are an unstoppable force. Is sin still a reality? Does it still cost? Are there still consequences? Yes. But can they be covered by the blood of the Lamb? Yes, they can. So they stop and the Lord reminds them of who they are. They refocus their hearts on the Lord. They have a peace offering reminding themselves of their fellowship with God. They write down the law. They read the law, the blesses and the curses. They remind themselves from Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 that God has saved them to display his glory. And yes, there will be moments of failure, but there are always new mercies. He has saved them to display the joy and the victory of the Lord. It is a reminder that even though chapter 7 was a terrible defeat, God is still for them. They needed a moment to stop and be reminded. You say, well, that's great, but what does this, what does this have to do with us? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and Romans 15 remind us that these stories are for our instruction and our encouragement. 
This entire journey of the people of God is a model for us. It's really a picture of what it looks like for us to walk with Jesus Christ. Listen to me. He calls us to trust and follow him. What Jesus says is this, do you believe that I'm the only way? Do you believe that life is only found in me? If you do, then repent of your old life and choose to trust and follow me. That's what Jesus asked for us. Believe that my death has paid for your sins and we begin on a journey of trusting and following Jesus Christ. He gives us the same resources. He gives us his promises, his power, and his presence. And our journey looks much like theirs. Meaning this, listen. Our journey as a follower of Jesus Christ is filled with some incredible victories and some incredible moments. And our journey of following Jesus is also full of some devastating defeats. It's some great wins and some great losses. It's some great rights, it's some great wrongs. And what Joshua chapter six does is it gives a picture of the reality of life with following Jesus, that all of us have moments in which we are incredible idiots. But our future is incredibly bright because there's always new mercies. And this little journey we've been taking through Joshua 6, through Joshua 8, reminds us in Joshua 6 that life is filled with battles and you have to fight them by faith. And Joshua 7 reminds us that when we fight by faith, there is incredible victories, but sometimes we fail. And when we fail, there is a way for our sins to be covered. And Joshua 8 reminds us that yesterday's defeats do not have to define tomorrow. Why? Because there's a God who always has new mercies that never come to an end. And the point of Joshua 8 is simply this. The promise of new mercies gives us hope for new victories. The promise of new mercies means that tomorrow can be a good day. That even if you failed today or failed yesterday, the next day can be a good day. Why? Not because you have more self-control, not because you're better, but because every single moment of the day there is never-ending mercy for those who acknowledge they need it. It is the promise of new mercies. Every single day, his mercies never come to an end. I think what they teach us here at the end of Joshua 8 is where it is that we go to find those new mercies. I want to very quickly tell you three places to run when you need new mercies. I want to plead with you to write these down because we need these new mercies. If you're looking for new mercies, first of all, you find new mercies at the cross. You find new mercies at the cross. That would have been a great place for an amen. You find new mercies at the cross. Thank you, it's better. It's still pitiful. <laughs> Did you notice the peace offering at the end of the battle there? That peace offering points us to Calvary. It points us to a moment when the animal is slaughtered so that the sins might be placed upon the animal. be a reminder that we have fellowship with God. We are right with God. We are his and, and he is ours. There is no longer enmity, but there is a right relationship with us and God. And at the end of a terrible defeat and then a victory, it's nice to stop and remember that the reason there's any victories is because we have peace with God. Romans chapter five, verse one says this, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, meaning that because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we have been declared righteous before God, meaning that when God sees us, he sees us through the lens of the perfect life of Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? That when the Lord looks at you, if you have come to Christ, what he sees is the perfect righteousness of Christ. 
That's what God sees when he looks at you as a believer. Therefore, having been justified by faith, you have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning, the payment for all of your sin has already been paid. The debt has already been paid off. All of the sins that you ever committed and ever will commit have at one moment been placed upon the cross of Jesus Christ and he died and was forsaken for your sin. It has already been paid for. And when you're looking for new mercies, you run to the cross to remind yourself that the only reason new mercies exist is because I've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you are not reminding yourself of that every single moment of the day, you will not be walking in new mercies. You will be walking in old guilt. And I can't, I can't help but just to read a few verses here from Ephesians. Don't turn there. Just listen to this. I need you to listen to this. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words... How bad of a sinner you are works perfectly in the plan of God to show the world how great his grace is. So if you can't embrace the fact that you're a desperate sinner, you will never be able to display the grace of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Listen to me. This idea of repenting and confessing our sins is not a one-time thing we do at the moment we come to Christ. We walk in a constant spirit of repentance. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You don't just do that once, you do that every day. And every day you sin and every day you come afresh to the cross and every day you ask for forgiveness and you receive that forgiveness. You take what is yours because of what Christ has done. You need to be running to the cross every moment of the day. New mercies are found at the cross. Let me tell you the second place new mercies are found. New mercies are found in God's word. New mercies are found in God's word. I love the emphasis at the end of Joshua 8 on the word of God. They wrote the word of God. They read the word of God. They took primarily, I believe, Deuteronomy 27 and 28, the blessings and the curses, and they wrote it down again. They already had it, but they wrote it down again. It's kind of a fresh renewal of the covenant, and they read it aloud to everyone. They knew that there was something about hearing and writing the word of God that would bring new life to them, and it tells us that all of the people were gathered as they read and wrote the law. As I thought about that, I, I couldn't help but to think of Psalm 19. Listen to this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Any of you have a soul that needs to be revived at all? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice the heart. 
The commandments of the Lord are pure, they enlighten the eyes, and the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In other words, if your soul needs reviving, if your life needs wisdom, if your heart needs rejoicing, if your eyes need enlightening, run to the word of God. There is nothing that takes the place of the word of God. Nothing in your life will ever take the place of this. You can do all the right things. If you skip this, you will not be receiving fresh mercies because this is in a living, active book that speaks to you in a way nothing else can speak to you. And as you read it, the very Spirit of God himself will take this book and interpret it into your life and do things that nothing else can do. You cannot bypass this. If you need new mercies, run to the cross and run to the Word. The last one is simply this. If you need new mercies... You find them in corporate worship. <laughs> you find them in corporate worship. You, you find them in God's word. You find them at the cross. And you find them in corporate worship. Three times it emphasizes that everyone was gathered together. 32, there in the presence of the people, all of Israel. They wrote on stones in the law of Moses. 33, and all Israel, sojourners as well as native borns. And then verse 35, and there was not a word of all that Moses commanded Joshua did not read before all the assembly. The women, listen. The little ones were there for the hearing, the writing, the reading of the word, and the sojourners lived, who lived among them. Everyone gathered together in worship, hearing the word. Somehow they thought that the little ones could understand the blessings and the curses. Somehow they thought it was right and good for the little ones to see what the big ones were doing. That getting in on that mattered to them. It is a conviction that I have, and what we're experiencing this morning is right, and it matters for them to be in with what God is doing on the corporate body of believers. All of them gathered together worshiping the Lord. I just want you to know, like, that this is a place where you find new mercies. The saddest thing in the world to me is that there are churches in which sinners feel they cannot attend because they're gonna be judged when in reality, this is the place where you should find new mercies. If you're completely messed up this morning, like you're, an, I mean, on the idiot scale, you're almost off. Don't run from this place, run to this place. And if what you receive from us is self-righteousness, God help us. Because the self-righteous in Luke 15 is the one who didn't get in on the good stuff of God. It's the lost prodigal that came back that got on on the good stuff. So God help us from being self-righteous because the self-righteous person is simply the one who's too proud to admit that they're just as big of an idiot as everybody else. This is where you run. This is the place where you're to find new mercies. There is something supernatural that happens in the corporate worship of God that happens no other place. Someone asked me, I'm sorry, I'm getting to preaching here. Someone asked me a few weeks ago, why is it that when I, when I came here, I turned up the lights in the sanctuary? That was a big deal for me. First day, I just said, hey, what are the lights on? Like 30%, I said, I want them all the way up. Like, I want the lights up. And, and there's a lot of reasons. One, I don't want you sleeping. Two, I want to see you. Three, I want you to be able to look at the word. And here's the deal. You have six other days to worship alone, in your car, wherever else. We have one time a week to look at each other and see each other worship and enjoy corporate worship together. And there's something about me watching you worship and you watching others worship that does something in our heart that nothing else does. Do you need the time alone with God? Absolutely. But nothing takes the place of corporate worship. And all of that is in Joshua 8. You need new mercies. And they're found at the cross, they're found in his word, and they're found in corporate worship. Now let me say this and I'll be done. I 
think what, I, what I've discovered in my own life, and I think this will resonate with you, is that those three things are all the things that we want to run away from when we're walking in sin. Like when you're walking in sin, you feel ashamed to come to corporate worship. You want to hide and you feel ashamed to go to the word of God and you feel ashamed to go to the cross again. But that's the enemy trying to keep you from the very things that will give you the new mercies. Listen to me, when you sin, you're gonna run somewhere. If you're proud, you're gonna wanna run away from the things of God and run into shame. If you're humble, you're gonna run back to the Lord and what you're gonna find with him is new mercies every single time. It is the humble that acknowledge their sin and run to Jesus. And my burden this morning, which is deep, I went to bed with it, I woke up with it, is that many of you are living with defeat and despair that Jesus Christ already died to take away. And you don't have to carry it anymore. But you do have to get humble enough to acknowledge you're an idiot and acknowledge your own sinfulness and run to Jesus Christ and learn that in despite of that, your future is incredibly bright. If you'll just align yourself with the Lord, trust and follow him, there's incredible hope for your life. Humble yourself, get right before God, believe in the promises of Joshua 8 and Romans 8 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Run to Jesus. Don't run away. His mercy never ceases. Some of you need to run to him for the first time this morning. For the very first time, acknowledging your sin, saying, Lord, here's my life for what it's worth. I wanna give it to you. I wanna begin today a life of trusting and following Jesus. Some of you need to run to him for the 10,000th time. And say, Lord, I'm coming back. I'm coming to you because I believe your mercies are never ceasing. And I wanna find new ones this morning. No matter what category you fall into, I pray that you would not run away, but you would run to Jesus. He is so good and so kind. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.